Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We're in Parshat Shemini. We are in Leviticus. We are in the laws and rules regarding what is permitted to eat, what is forbidden to eat. We have had many conversations in this room and... I don't know if we've had it on Zoom, actually, but we've had many conversations in this room about what that means, why it is, because that's all we can do is guess why the forbidden things are forbidden. We are not told why they are forbidden. We are told they are unclean. We are not told why. We're not told what the criteria are for them being unclean, other than they don't share the criteria of things that are clean. That is not a reason, right? That's just a list that's not giving us we it does not help us understand why these are divided the way they are we've had theories in the past including one from mary douglas um, that was about locomotion um, and you've heard me put that forward uh several times and then we looked at cam yankowski who quoted um david what's his name and um and that was a whole nother theory i'll i'll give it to us in a nutshell when we after we've looked at the text a little, but here's the thing, people. I'm going to be introducing what I did not know existed till I started noodling around in Mary Douglas's stuff. She revised her theory and no longer based it on locomotion. So we are going to look at Mary Douglas's theory of why things are classified the way they are, which blew my mind. If you have a Bible at home, which you should anyway, every single one of you, then uh, turn to Leviticus chapter 11, verse 1. <clears throat> and God spoke to Moshe and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the Israelite people, saying, These are the creatures that you may eat from among all the land animals. Any animal that has true hooves with clefts through the hooves and that chews the cud, such you may eat. The following, however, of those that either chew the cud or have true hooves, you shall not eat. The camel, although it chews the cud, it has no true hooves. It is impure for you. The daemon, although it chews the cud, it has no true hooves. It is impure for you. The hare, although it chews the cud, it has no true hooves. It is impure for you. And the swine, although it has true hooves, with the hooves cleft through, it does not chew the cud. It is impure for you. Where'd Bert go? You shall not eat of their flesh nor touch their carcasses. They are impure for you. These you may eat of all that live in water. Anything in water, whether in the seas or in the streams that has fins and scales, these you may eat. But anything in the seas or in the streams that has no fins and scales among all the swarming things of the water and among all other living creatures that are in the water, they are what? An abomination for you. And an abomination for you, they shall remain. You shall not eat of their flesh, and you shall abominate their carcasses. Everything in water that has no fins and scales shall be an abomination for you. The following you shall abominate among the birds. They shall not be eaten. They are an abomination. The eagle, the vulture, and the black vulture, vulture, the kite, 
falcons of every variety, all varieties of raven, the ostrich, the nighthawk, the seagull, hawks of every variety, the little owl, the cormorant, and the great owl, the white owl, the pelican, and the bustard, the stork, herons of every variety, the hoopoe, and the bat. All winged swarming things that walk on fours shall be an abomination for you. But these you may eat, thank God, among all the winged swarming things. Thank you, Rachel Feldman. We're at verse 21. But these you may eat among all the winged swarming things that walk on all fours, all that have above their feet jointed legs to leap with on the ground. Of these you may eat the following. Locusts, yay, of every variety. All varieties of bald locust. Crickets of every variety. And all varieties of grasshopper. But all other winged swarming things that have four legs shall be an abomination for you. And the following shall make you impure. All right, so we got abomination. That's one category. Also, you will be, if you touch these things, tame, you will be impure. Whoever carries the carcasses of them, they shall wash their clothes and be impure until evening. So it's not a very serious case of tum'ah. Every animal that has true hooves, but without clefts through the hooves or that does not chew the cud, they are impure for you. This is different from abomination because this is about touching, not about eating. Whoever touches them shall be impure. And also all animals that walk on paws among those that walk on fours are impure for you. Whoever touches their carcasses shall be impure until evening. And anyone who carries their carcasses shall wash those clothes and remain impure until evening. They are impure for you. The following shall be impure for you from among the things that swarm on the earth. The mole, the mouse, the great lizards of every variety, the gecko, the land crocodile, the lizard, the sand lizard, and the chameleon. Those are for you the impure among all the swarming things. Whoever touches them when they are dead shall be impure until evening. And anything on which any which any one of them falls when dead shall be impure, be it any article of wood or a cloth or a sack or a skin, any such article that can be put to use shall be dipped in water, and it shall remain impure until evening, then it is pure. So this goes on and on and on and on and on, right, to talk about um, impurity and how to fix it um, when either you get impure from it or something else gets impure from it. Verse 41 All the things that swarm upon the earth are an abomination. They shall not be eaten. You shall not eat among all things that swarm upon the earth. Anything that crawls on its belly or anything that walks on fours or anything that has many legs, for for they are an abomination. You shall not draw abomination upon yourselves through anything that swarms. You shall not make yourself impure therewith and thus become impure. For here, this is important. For I, yud Hey vav Hey am your God. You shall sanctify yourselves and be holy, for I am holy. This is not in here by accident. It's not an aside. This is the point of all of these laws. You shall not make yourselves impure through any swarming thing that moves on the earth. For I, yud Hey vav Hey am the one who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall be holy, for I am holy. Okay. Mary Douglas wants to argue. You can take it off the text now, Rachel Feldman. Thank you. Mary Douglas wants to argue what we just read, this business about holiness, is the entire point of eating what we can eat and not eating what we can't eat. That 
Kedusha, holiness is the point. Holiness means refraining from being tame, right? From being impure when we can help it. Sometimes we can't help it, um, which is fine. But when we can help it, we want to not be tame. Um, and certainly when we can choose to eat things that are reflective of Torah's understanding of holiness, we should eat them and completely refrain from everything that Torah says we are not to eat. So the big question for everybody is, how does refraining from eating cer- these these certain categories relate to holiness? It doesn't make any kind of sense. And it does not match any other food taboos in the ancient world. So scholars have a really hard time trying to figure out why these categories. Nobody will ever know because it doesn't tell us, right? We, we either go, who cares? Which is what a lot of people do. Who cares? This was 3,000 years ago. We have a much different understanding of holiness around eating now. Fine. That is a perfectly legitimate answer. But for those of us who are anthropologically inclined and are really curious about what might have motivated these categories so that it doesn't feel quite so um, uh, random and therefore, okay, whatever, that was then, this is now. Um, it's just interesting to dig into what it might be. So this is from Mary Douglas's article, The Forbidden Animals in Leviticus. This is written after her piece that talks about um, animals being forbidden based on their locomotion. Her, the theory was that things that didn't locomote the way you would think they should given their environment, they are off limits. So in other words, if something lives in the water, it should swim. If it can walk up on land, that's creepy. Like that... That crosses a boundary that's not how it's supposed to move, and therefore the crab is off limits. Okay? That is one theory. But there is a way you could also argue why would locomotion be the thing that defines what you can eat and what you can't eat? And not every example fits neatly into that. All right. So let's look at this diagram. Why did I give you this diagram? Because Mary Douglas is a genius. That's why I'm giving you this diagram. First of all, she's basing it on, she's basing this on other teaching, on other uh, work before her. <clears throat> but what you have in front of you, this circle that you're seeing on the screen if you're at home on Zoom, this is, I just can't even believe this is so amazing. This is the book of Leviticus laid out. On your left, top left corner, where it says one through nine, those are chapters. One through nine, right? What is the topic of chapters one through nine? Things and persons consecrated to God. Then you go down on that left side, chapter 10, chapters 11 through 15, chapter 16, 17, 18. Now, she's going to argue, as do many literary critics, that this is a circular book. The, The one side, the left side that you see there, Everything covered in there is the introduction to those topics. Chapter 19 is the pivot, equity between the people. Chapter 19 is the holiness code, remember? So equity between people flips the entire thing. So now we go the opposite direction on the right side that's going to explicate everything on the left side. Beautiful, people. 
So regulation of sex is chapter 18. Well, once you you hit the pivot of chapter 19, chapter 20 is going to work in the opposite direction, right? Now we're going to get regulation of sex with a lot more explanation and detail. Same with 21 through 22, blemish and leprosy. Days, right? Holy times, day of atonement. Do you see how it reflects the other side? But chiastically, like a little bit out of order, but it makes an X that is a popular diagram in the ancient world is writing a text that's chiastic, an X. Go up, the name defiled is directly across from the holy place defiled. Things and persons consecrated to the Lord exactly matches chapter one through nine. Yes? So if you have a pivot at 19, what do you have to have at the top of the circle? You have to have a parallel to 19. And it has to be your closing. And it is. Equity between God and the people, like the ultimate equity. Down below, it's equity between the people. Up on top, it's the equity between God and the people. Just as we had an introduction, chapter 27 is what she calls the latch. This matches the introduction and is the thing that closes the entire text. Okay, why did I bring this to you? First of all, oh my God, genius. Because what it does is it lifts up Leviticus to not just be a random collection of stuff, put it in order that we don't understand. It shows that the editing of Leviticus was a very thoughtful, purposeful editing. And that the reason, wait, we got that earlier in the book. Why do we have it over here again? And we go, that seems like Department of Redundancy Department. That's terrible editing. Unless you have this as your key, then it is brilliant editing of the book. Yes? All right. <clears throat> but I didn't bring it to you just because it's clever and brilliant and an analysis that makes us appreciate Leviticus. I'm bringing it because she says it's meaningful when we look at these laws in chapter 11, it's the introduction to this concept. Where do we see the real reason, the real unpacking of it? Across, right? Where it's going to be filled out, where blemish is going to be talked about again in 21 and 22. So she's going to look at the pivot at 19. What does that tell us? That then is going to inform chapters 21 and 22, which are the, the real, uh, outcome, if you will, of chapter 11. Is this making any sense? Okay, good. Um, Because it took my brain a little bit, uh, a little while to kind of get what, right, all that meant. But I'm going to walk you through it. Because chapter 11 is where we are. So So notice what I just said, that the concept of chapter 11 through 15, what does she say it is? Blemish. And that a blemish on the skin is leprosy or on your house, or on whatever. So what does blemish have to do with kashrut? This is her whole argument. Her whole argument is that blemish is the definition of what is unkosher. How does a creature walking in the water, how is that a blemish? Okay, look at page 20. So let's look at the top. Let's look at, um, this is um, from 24 in Leviticus, chapter 24. Um, When a man causes disfigurement in his neighbor, this is the law of Talion. We've studied this a lot. As he has done, it shall be done to him. 
Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he has disfigured a person, so shall he be disfigured. How does the King James Version translate that exact same pasuk? If a man causes a blemish in his neighbor, so shall it be done for him. Breach for breach, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he has caused a blemish in a person, so shall it be done to him. What does blemish mean now? A wrong that results in what? Damage. What kind of damage? Physical damage. So it doesn't have to be congenital. The way we think of sacrificial animals not being allowed to have a blemish according to this part of Leviticus, if we take seriously this word blemish, then it's saying any kind of damage that physically is done, the the resulting damaged thing is blemished. Okay, so let's just hold that. So causing a blemish to a neighbor is doing damage according to elementary principles of justice. So it's not saying... Um, if my right hand is broken because you sat on it on purpose, that, that, that's just inherently a bad thing. That's not what Leviticus is saying. That's not why there's a punishment for you sitting on my hand on purpose. Why is there a punishment? Because you've ruined my hand and that is an injustice. That's why Torah cares about it because it's unjust. Okay. So now we're bringing in the concept of justice. That's why Talion is here. If you damage somebody, you have caused them an injustice. They are now the sufferers of an injustice. That is not holiness. That is antithetical to holiness injustice. No. Intent is is absolutely critical. In this case, in the in the law of Talion, um the intent if it's intent if it's intended, it's a more severe punishment. Okay, but I'm still responsible for damage done to somebody by my ox that gores you because we knew the ox has gored before. You know what I mean? They're, right? Okay. But, but I, want to, I want us to remember this concept of injustice. This is critical to Mary Douglas's theory. Blemish related to injustice. All right. Blah, 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 Justice and righteousness, right? So the statements on blemish, we're halfway down that first paragraph, connect it with inequitable dealings, okay? It would now appear, she says, that the forbidden species which are not covered by the law against eating blood either have something lacking, like joints, legs, fins, or scales, or something superfluous, like a burden on their backs, and that their disfigurement has something to do with injustice. All right, that was a big leap, I know, because I skipped over like 10 pages, um, because we don't have all day. All right, so what did she just say that I skipped over? One, there is, we are forbidden to what? We are forbidden to eat in an animal? We're forbidden to eat blood. So the argument goes that it's obvious to lots of folks that the the animals that are permitted for us to eat, ones that chew their cud and have a split hoof, none of those animals ever eats blood, ever. So that is a protection 
against a secondary consumption of blood. If I eat an animal that eats blood, I'm eating an animal with another animal's blood in it. And so there's an argument that says, therefore, they are eliminated. You cannot eat them. Bert Kleinman's going to remind us that the rabbis want to say it's because that's a yucky thing to kill stuff. So you don't want to eat things that are yucky because you don't want to ingest yuckiness. All right. I'm not going to say that is irrelevant to the biblical categorization. It is one step removed from how the Bible understands it as direct. You can't eat blood. If you eat something that ate another animal's blood, you're eating blood. It's very immediate. The rabbis take it to a, you don't want to be like animals that kill other, right? So it's, it's about characteristics and traits, whereas in the Bible, it's literal. You don't eat blood, so you don't eat things that ate blood, okay? And I'm not saying it's not for a similar reason, right? But she's going to tie it to injustice. Okay, so one is blood. What did we just say? The other thing that we're not allowed to eat, anything that has too much or too little. Things that have too many feet or they crawl so they don't have enough feet. They have something on their back that they have to drag around all the time. That's a burden for an animal. It also may protect the animal, but it serves as a burden to the animal. So she's going to argue that anything that has too much or too little in the animal world is why they are eliminated for us. Either it's about blood, including birds, right? So this is about land animals and about birds, because the argument is birds that eat other birds are are off limits because of the blood thing. Um, all right, and things that have too much or too little. All right, so let's go. So let's go on. Let's go to twenty one and go to the bottom, almost the bottom of the page, the paragraph that starts two conditions. <clears throat> Two conditions stand for the results of injustice. So what does injustice result in? Two conditions, she's saying. To be despoiled. That is to be victim of theft or fraud and to be oppressed. That is to carry a heavy load. The unfair loss on the one hand, the unfair burden on the other, these are the conditions of poverty. So when you think about people who are poor, what are they suffering? They are suffering either what they're lacking or that their burden is too heavy to bear. They're working three jobs, trying to raise kids, right? That's too heavy a burden. And they also lack things that, that make it unjust, their, their living situation. Think of beggars in any city crowding the steps of public buildings, staggering on crutches or crawling with maimed feet, hands clutching their scavenging bags, and we can recognize the prophet's description of the poor and oppressed. So she's going to the words of the prophet. You can read the whole article to see where she ties that in. She's saying the prophets of Israel and these texts are all concerned with injustice. And looking at the prophets and looking at what they're yelling and screaming about, it's about the deprivation that goes with poverty and the burden that goes with poverty. In Leviticus, I love this, people. In Leviticus, the body is the cosmos. Let's repeat that. 
In Leviticus, the body is the cosmos. That is phenomenal. Just as we take seriously that we are God, a reflection of the divine that Harvey doesn't believe in. So that we are reflections of the divine, that we are a, a mishkan, right? Me'at. Each of us is a tabernacle. Each of us is a sanctuary. Each of us is the universe in, in many. So it is with these animals, like I hinted at in her, in her work from last week that I was talking about, that the sacrificial animal is a representation of the cosmos. The head and stuff goes first, then I'm going to ruin my my suet lesson. Um, but the suet in that middle section goes next, and it is only for God because the outer part of the Mishkan, the inner part of the Mishkan. The inner part of the Mishkan is where human beings meet God. That's why the suet goes to God and the liver and the kidneys because it's this middle part. If the body is the Mishkan, the middle part is where God and humans meet. The end here, the kishkas, the guts, the genitalia is the most intimate. That's the holy of holies. That goes last. So if the animal is becoming right now a gift to God and God is consuming this, this model of the cosmos, if the body is the cosmos, that's going to mean some things are rejected because the cosmos is built reflective of God's righteousness and justice. Or should be. I just have one question on this cosmos. If all the world is the cosmos? No, the Leviticus. In Leviticus, the body is the cosmos. And there's a separation between the body and God. No. 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 There's no separation between the body and God. The body is the cosmos. The cosmos is reflective of the divine. Right? Within the cosmos, there is justice and injustice. That's just how it is. We're supposed to live lives that encourage justice. Yes? Okay, so let, hang on, because now I, I got to give you the bridge. In Leviticus, the body is the cosmos. Everything in the universe shows forth the righteousness of God. Animals and humans, people and priests Animals for food, animals for the altar. Their bodies are figures of righteousness and unrighteousness. The forbidden animal species exemplify the predators on the one hand, that is those who eat blood, and on the other, the sufferers of injustice. Consider the list, especially the swarming insects, the chameleon with its lumpy face, the high hump tortoise and beetle, and the ants laboring under their huge loads. Think of the blindness of worms and bats, the vulnerability of fish without scales. Think of their human parallels, the laborers, the beggars, the orphans, and the defenseless widows. Not themselves, and this is critical because this is where I got stuck for a few seconds when I was reading this. Not themselves, but the behavior that reduces them to this state is the abomination. No wonder God made the crawling things and found them good, right? How? Wait a minute. If they're reflective of injustice, how can that be in God's perfect world where everything is good? It is not the grand style of Leviticus to take time off from cosmic themes to teach that these pathetic creatures are to be shunned because their bodies are disgusting, vile, bad, any more than it is consistent with its theme of justice to teach that the poor are to be shunned. 
Shunning is not the issue. Predation is wrong. Eating is a form of predation, and the poor are not to be prey. Now we're in a position to make the connection between all three types of forbidden animal foods. First, out of honor to the blood and the life that is in the blood, no flesh with blood in it is to be eaten. This rule identifies herbivore, herbivorous land animals and birds and excludes carnivores on the earth or in the air. Second, animal species that resemble in shape the sufferers from physical injury must not be eaten. That is, an equivalence is drawn between species and individuals lamed or maimed or otherwise disfigured and connects with the rule against offering blemished animals. Third, in the waters, those creatures without fins or scales must not appear on the table as food. The Mishnaic tradition has looked to water monsters for examples of this rule, octopus or crab. But it would be more congenial to the interpretation that we are here suggesting that young fish were intended in the prohibition, meaning what doesn't have fins and scales? Young fish. It is not their repellent monsterhood, but their vulnerable youthfulness that would be symbolized by absence of scaly covering. Fishes hatch out naked. Their fins and scales grow on them. So shoals of baby fishes, minnows, whitebait, and larvae of insects, the orphans of the water world, would be forbidden by this rule. Holiness is incompatible with predatory behavior. The command to be holy is fulfilled by respecting blood, the symbol of violent predation, and respecting the symbolic victims of predation. The forbidden animals in this perspective represent the endangered, the endangered categories for whom Isaiah spoke, the oppressed, the fatherless, the widow. Respect for them is a way of remembering the difference between the clean and unclean, the holy and the unholy. Yes, Judith. Mary Douglas is known in anthropology primarily for her work with symbol symbolism correct and this fits in so beautifully with her work on correct. symbols in cultures all around the world that i'm amazed she didn't get to this sooner um, yeah um right we always kind of have to wonder who are the influences on a scholar that had her you know in another direction about locomotion um but she does come back to her central core theme which is so many of these things are about symbolism. And so for her, thank you for bringing us to the 30,000 feet view. What she's saying is it is completely understandable as a symbolic act of aligning oneself against injustice to refrain from eating predators or the predated. (laughs) What What is it? The victims of predation. All swarming things are off limits because swarming things are victims of predation. So she argues whether it's on the land, in the air, or in the water, those things that are symbolic of injustice, either by being predators or being victims of predation or being overly burdened or underprotected, they are symbols of injustice and they are forbidden because we are to align ourselves with 
justice and lining ourselves up with justice, both in how we behave and how we eat and in every other way is how we live lives of holiness. Building a just society is this equivalent of being, of uh, building a holy society. Bert? Why doesn't it say that? Well, then why doesn't it say that? No, I, it, it, no right. I, I mean, I, I, I buy that. It's very interesting. It's meaningful me, meaningful to me. Perhaps a reason for keeping that fruit. But it doesn't yeah, say that, and the ra- rabbis didn't take it to that place, did they? So they did not. Yeah. Well, sort of, by saying a predator is a symbol of violence or, or is embodying violence, and therefore we don't want to eat that body. Yeah, because the issue for liberal progressive Jews today is... How does kosher? this relate to well, holiness? kosher or not kosher? Right. Is this a reason to keep kosher? That's right. So, so to your first question, why didn't it say that? If you look at the, if you look at the diagram, I think Mary Douglas would argue it does say it very clearly. If you know how to read as a literate person, remember, if you're going to read it, you have to be literate. And in the ancient world, if you're literate, already you're in another class. So if you're in that class that can read this, then you're someone who knows that a circularly written text starts here, comes down this side, has the pivot here, and then gets the rest of the information here until you get to the closing and the latch. And at 19, we get told all about blemishes and justice and injustice and lives of holiness. And then when you come around this, well, then obviously blemish means some kind of injustice. So I would argue they didn't say it because they didn't have to. They said it in the way the editor put together the structure, because it was a familiar structure. So the ancient reader, literate, upper class, educated, the ancient reader would have known to look for the pivot. And so, so, thank you, Judah. Some of, some of us are ancient readers. We need rabbis and anthropologists to explain this to us. Now, thank God, you need rabbis, yes, to explain this to you. Like, thank God. Um, so... Whether you buy it or not, I think it is a beautiful interpretation that, like you, Bert, for me, it made it so much more meaningful, even if it doesn't mean it would change my practice about eating. It does help me once again defend the text as not being random, as not being archaic because they didn't understand trichinosis and that poop shoots and shrimp can kill you. I mean, they understood that, but they didn't know why, so they made it off. Like, that's it's garbage. Um, and so, and I'm always telling people it's garbage. I try to be respectful of how I say that, um, but it's garbage. So, um, so, so then I have to come up with, okay, well then, then why was it meaningful in the ancient world? And, you know, I've gone with, because things are off limits, because they cross category, blah, blah, blah. That's not nearly as compelling to me as this argument that says, because it was all about eating in a way that for them, whether we agree with it or not, doesn't matter, that for them was expressive of lining up with justice and refraining from anything having to do with injustice. So this is a way of bringing that to the table. Literally, this is a way of bringing that to the table. Literally. Does God belong in the bedroom? This is, does God belong at the table? God God belongs in the bedroom, on the table. I'm not even, okay, that was an interesting image in my head. But okay, so in the bedroom separately, on the table, um, in business, in conversation, in raising children, 
God belongs everywhere. So when you look at a menu, I spent some time looking, everything is quick. <laughs> I remember, you know, I go to a restaurant and the first thing you do is look at the menu and see what can I eat and what can't I eat. And this is this talking about bringing consciousness of justice and injustice to food choices? Yes. Yes. I mean, that's what she's arguing is that that's the whole system was was lined up so that there was a consciousness around. We don't eat that which has suffered injustice by its very design. It's a reminder to us. And we and we don't. In other words, predation is normal in the animal world. It's not for us. It shouldn't be for us because we have a choice right about about how we behave. There's nothing wrong with predation. I want to be very clear about that right? She's not suggesting they said predation was wrong. Humans, what do you, what is the verb of predator? Humans, what is it? Predate. Humans predating, this sounds so weird though. Humans doing that is wrong to the vulnerable. That is just wrong. Okay. Um, And just like there's rich humans and poor humans, that's not, that's not inherently saying anything about the person, One's not better, one's not worse in terms of the person, but how we behave around those circumstances is very much important. Yeah? Dana, what are you chewing on? I was thinking way back when, when people were hearing this information from the Torah being read to them or spoken, and what it meant for them, that they're separating themselves out from what everyone else is doing in the culture. And, you know, I was trying to imagine that. And um, she does remind us, Douglas, that, um, or no, maybe it was Kemi Yankowski. Uh, yeah, it was Kemi Yankowski who reminds us that pork was a staple of the Canaanite diet. It was a staple. Um, so, so it was definitely, she would argue, separating us out right from anybody in the neighborhood who would have had bacon every morning, right? And a pork chop at night. And that, that this very much separated the Israelites out, right? That, that they were distinctive. They were distinct that way. And that's one of the values as well. If you don't want them to backslide and you don't want them to become um, Baal worshipers or Asherah worshipers again, remember most of early Israelites were converted Canaanites. If you don't want them backsliding, then you'd better keep them from hanging out with the neighbors who are going to have a festival to Asherah next weekend, can y'all come? The answer is if we can't eat anything there, why would we go? Why do you think we serve things to y'all? Because if we don't serve y'all, you won't come. Right? Like, so it was the same in the ancient world. If we can't eat there, Bob, Robert Gordon's laughing. If, you, if they can't eat there, why would they go? It's not so fun, right? Because so much socializing is around food. That's why the sacrificial system in the first place is about drawing close to God and drawing God close to you is that you eat together. That was That's fundamental to any human culture, terrestrial human culture. Eating is intimacy, social intimacy. You know, uh, I'm wondering if this whole piece, it would be like a midrash. I'm, I'm your God, I'm holy. If you start there, appropriate disagreement, then we see what's in here. And now we're creating the 20th. So I would just argue the word midrash. I would say it's not a midrash. It's embodying what you said. What, what did you start with? I am Adonai, your God. I am holy. Right. How do we embody that? It's by our food choices that are reflective of 
predation or victimization, however you want the mic. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, I know what you mean by it's, it's an expounding of it, but it's literal. Eating, eating this and eating that make you holy or not holy. Because it says that here. So it's not midrashic. It's not like some idea. It's actually you eat it, you become holy or not holy. Except that now we're trying to explain why these different categories are consistent with what she's teaching. She's trying to unpack why would this category be holy and that category unholy. For them, it would have been natural. Right. And for us. But what I'm saying is it's not contemporary. It was then. No, her piece. It's about then. But it's translated. She says this is them. They would have thought this way. They would have seen this as lining up with justice or injustice, holy or not holy. They saw it this way. All right. And that we have to figure out what, where we need to go is you need to write the midrash on what does that mean now. So for me, that might mean I don't want to eat things that are produced in a sweat. I guess you don't eat things produced in a sweatshop. Um, like I don't want to eat things that are that involve child labor because that's unjust, right? And so I don't want to eat things. I don't want to. That's is exactly how they understood it. We now have to write the modern, the contemporary midrash on what does that look like for us? And veal, right? He knows my big thing is veal, right? That we don't eat things that are kept in a pen its whole life. And that it's just cruel. And so that it has fattier and tastes better, that that is unjust. And so we say we're not going to eat that because that lines me up with injustice instead of justice, unhol- inhol- unholiness rather than holiness. So, Harvey? So how does pork fit into this? I mean, it, it doesn't carry a burden. It, it, it's a... You know, it's it's a re- it's not a predator. One could argue it does. If you throw human remains to a pig, it'll eat it. And and locusts, which do swarm. I mean, they they are the French fries of the insect world. I understand. They're kosher. They're kosher. Yes. But they swarm. Um, no, because they can hop on the land. They hop. They don't so, swarm. Right. Right. Field pool. That's right. So if they can function in a way that they can get away from a predator. Do you know what that? So if they can get away from a predator, then they're, they don't swarm. They do swarm, but it's not swarming in the sense of not really swarm. Like we're using swarm because it looks like swarm, but it can hop out of the way of a predator. Therefore, it is just. Are, are these rules of kashrut sort of like the the first example of something that was going to be happening over and over again throughout the arc of the Jewish people yes. in the sense of, you know, here's one way that you're going to be a separate people. And then you have this whole tension of, okay, we'll give you judges. We're not crazy about giving you judges, but we'll give you judges. And then what? Now you want a king? Now you want to be like everybody else? Okay, you can have kings. And all that sort of stuff where there's this this almost like losing ground against this overwhelming need to be like everybody else. It's, it's a constant tension, isn't it? Right? We, we want to be different from everybody else, and yet we have all these ways that we want to preserve a uniqueness that, that keeps us separate, in, not separate just because separate is better, but separate from the values that we don't support in the society. Does that make sense? Right? Yeah, you want a king because you want to be like everybody else. Okay, God says, I'll concede that, but you have to remain separate from everybody else in that your king will be subject to this. 
And nobody else's king was subject to this. Everyone else's king wrote this and said, oh, this is me and God. We're giving you all this. And Israelites said, no, your king is subject to this, as is everybody else, and can't have a bunch of horses, and can't have a bunch of wives. And then that has to remain distinct because those values are distinct from the values of the people who are screaming for a king. Yes. And as Dana suggests, in today's world, anti-Semitism does that separating for us in many cases. In some ways. Yes. So are there people on screen who want to say something? Margo, unmute, and then whoever else was going to talk. Margo? Yes. I was just thinking, and this whole subject makes me uh, really think about it. It was many years ago, which many of you wouldn't even remember, when we were rebuilding the synagogue, we struggled over whether or not we should have a kosher kitchen. And my question is, why why should we not have a kosher kitchen? Uh, but anyway, I just uh, was thinking about this, and there was a lot of uh, discussion going on about this, but I guess the, the main reason was for everybody to feel comfortable that ate in our synagogue. Right. So it's not just feeling comfortable, though. There are some people who won't eat somewhere where where there's not a certain standard of kashrut. So what we would be saying by not having a kosher kitchen is we don't care to accommodate Jews who have a, a level of kashrut in order to eat somewhere. We're, we're defining who we are as a community to say, we don't care about you. Do you know what I mean? About you being a full participant here, not just comfortable, a full participant, able to participate in everything we do, including eating. To not make any kashrut accommodation would be saying, we don't care that you're not able to be a full member. Too bad, so sad. You're different enough from us that we don't care. All right, David Russo, do you want to speak? Unmute. Go ahead. It's okay. Yeah. I think the idea of justice is really appealing to me because I've never understood many of the distinctions like separation. And I was sort of curious, I I just posted something that said, is the only difference between the pig and the cow that the pig might eat blood? But it seems if you're looking through a justice prism, it really doesn't make much difference if the animals are treated fairly is there a difference between the pig and the cow? Yeah. I mean, wait, wait what, what's, I don't get the question. Well, I, justice says don't, it's something that's a victim of a predator or tenacious yeah. conduct is impure or not to be eaten. Right. Is killing the cow a victim? Is it predacious? So we can eat steers or can eat beef or, I, 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 I'm just not sure I understand I'm not sure I understand the the confusion. So our behavior vis-a-vis animals is is not of concern right now in chapter 11. How we treat animals is not the concern of chapter 11. Chapter 11 is concerned about what does the animal itself reflect, justice or injustice? And that's what we eat, and that's what we refrain from eating. That's Douglas's argument. 
it, it, that we, Amy, is it is it fair to eat veal? Yet today we'll look at that and say, hey, that's a victim. I mean, we're, it's bad behavior to keep so some of that. I would say if we're trying to translate for us, <clears throat> what is justice and injustice as regards and eating animals, then yeah. I would say, yes, that I believe it is relevant how we behave towards the animal. But that's, that's dealt with somewhere else in the Torah. How we treat animals is dealt, dealt with somewhere else. But it is there. You, you have to let the baby be with their mother for eight days. Because the mother is tortured by having its young torn away from it right away. Mm-hmm. Right? You have to shoo away the mother bird before you take her eggs. You shall not see the kid in its mother's milk. There are ways we are given limits on how we treat animals in Torah. It's just not here in chapter 11. But I believe, yes, that is, rele- that is relevant to our conversation as liberal contemporary Jews, our understanding of justice vis-a-vis consumption of animals. I believe how they're treated is relevant, yes. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.